You can turn your Bibles this morning. We're going to start with Proverbs chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 7. Um, I'm getting ready for church this morning, and uh, one of my kids isn't feeling well. Uh, some of the other ones are up earlier than normal. Um, on a really fortunate morning, I'm able to mostly get my morning routine done before they're up, and um, so there's a little bit of peace and quiet. But, but this morning, there were two of them that were up, and it was like the Spanish Inquisition at my house this morning. It was like, Dad, why do you take a shower every Sunday? I'm like, well, son, I tend to take a shower every day, <laughs> not just on Sundays, but, but you know, because uh, it helps me feel clean and I'm ready for church. I don't know. People don't want to smell me, you know, like, Dad, why do you wear two shirts instead of just one? Well, this one is an undershirt, and this one goes over to... Dad, I'm going over sermon notes. Dad, what are those? And I'm like, go play in your room, please, please, please. And it, it's funny because, you know, like, they're just curious. You know, especially Kate, who's not usually up for those events. Um, she's never seen me sit down at the table and read sermon notes before, apparently. So she didn't know what they were. And, you know, I'm trying to be patient, and I'm trying to, like, be kind and explain to them gently while inside I'm going, leave me alone. Go away for a minute. Like, I'll take care of you in a minute, right? But like, they're just curious. that They want to know what dad is doing. And uh, fortunately, we have a, a, a God who is a father to us, who has way more patience than I do. He has unlimited resources. He is all-knowing, right? And so like, when we're curious we can ask questions without fear that God is going to look at us and say, go away, <laughs> right? I'm busy. I don't have time right now. Like, our God wants us to get to know him, and he chooses to reveal himself to us in many different ways. We talked about some of those ways uh, last week where we talked about how God is revealed in nature, and we saw... Um, looking at uh, what has been made, we can determine that there's a cause of the universe. We can determine that it was intelligently designed. There are things that we learn about God that he reveals um, to us through what we call just general revelation, not specifically through the Bible, but um, through the things that he has made. And so we want to look this morning, we're going to start in Proverbs, because Proverbs is a book about wisdom. You know, I, we have a little booklet in the back there, and it gives summaries of all the books of the Bible. And I turned it to the page for Proverbs today, and at the top there's this subheading. It says, a guide for living well in God's world, right? And it's like, hey, that's it. Like, I want to live a good life. I want to live well in the world that God has made. And so if you'll read with me here, it says this in Proverbs. Um, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, for gaining wisdom and instruction for understanding words of insight, for receiving instruction in prudent behavior, doing what is right and just and fair, for giving prudence to those who are simple, knowledge and discretion to the young. Let the wise listen and add to their learning, and let the discerning get guidance, for understanding proverbs and parables, the sayings and riddles of the wise. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction." So he's just kind of introducing this, this book that's going to be about wisdom, uh, living well in God's world. Is, I think it's a, a wonderful summary. And there's a couple of things I just want to highlight here in the first few verses as we get into the message today. 
Um, the first thing is that there's this desire, should be at least, this desire for gaining wisdom. My, my kids are asking questions because they're curious and they want to know, and they're learning things, and they're learning how to, to live in, in this world. And so they're, they're naturally curious. Dad, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? Well, have you thought about doing it this way? No, don't do it that way, son. Do it this way. Like, like they're just curious. They're trying to gain understanding. And so God in his word, he's given us instruction for prudent behavior or wise behavior. And um, notice here, there's this focus on what is good and right. This is the concept, of, the concept of ethics or morality, right? Like doing what is right and fair and just. We're recognizing that there's this uh, world that we live in and it requires certain behavior from us and we want to do what is good. And then we notice here in, in verse 7, it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And this is important because um, there's a certain understanding of God. Knowledge um, comes out of right relationship with God. And here it says, like, uh, fools despise wisdom and instruction. And it's important when you read Proverbs that you understand the word for fool is, is not necessarily about someone who's lacking intelligence or not being smart. It's actually referring to someone who's being morally foolish. They're making the wrong choices. They're, they're doing evil behavior is the idea when you read that word fool. So it's not about being smart. It's about our, these people who aren't doing the right thing. But anyway, I want to focus in on the fear of the Lord being the beginning of knowledge, right? Like this right relationship with God and knowledge flows out of that. And if we don't have that relationship with God, then our knowledge can get wonky. It gets all crazy. Things that, things that we're pursuing, the way that we see the world gets off. And so... We've been talking about God revealing himself, and there are, are some things that we, we really want to think about and to think deeply about. about. Um, have you ever heard of the concept, a worldview? Have you ever heard this phrase before? This is a phrase, it, it means like the way that we see the world. It's, it's a, lens, a lens through which we view everything else. I used to, in the back closet, used to have these big glasses. They were like this big and they had big blue lenses, and I, I couldn't find them this morning. I don't know. The kids stole them somewhere. They might be back there. I missed them. I don't know. But it's like they're, they're, when you put on the big blue glasses, everything you see is colored blue. Like when you have a certain lens through which you view everything, um, everything is affected by that lens, right? So that would be what the, the idea of worldview is. It's a, a system of beliefs about how the world is. And so it would answer... Uh, basic questions about the world. What is the nature of reality? Does God exist? Who am I? What does it mean to be human? Why am I here? Is there a purpose? Is there meaning in life? And what does it mean to, get, to live a good life? Are there things that I should, I should value? And see, as we begin to ask these questions, these questions are related to wisdom. How do I live well in the world that God has created? That's my, that's my worldview. I'm understanding that there is a God who created the world, and I have a relationship with him, and how do I best live in the world that he has made? All right? So it's this system of beliefs about how we view the world. Now, there are many different worldviews. We're going to uh, name a few of them today, and maybe you're not familiar with these names, but they are worldviews that people hold. 
Now, it's important to understand that everybody has a particular way of interpreting the world. You may not know that there's a particular name for it. You may not understand that it's a full system of thoughts, but everybody answers these basic questions in some way, shape, or form. And so we can categorize these basic understandings of the world. Uh, the first one that we might name would be Christian theism. Now, again, that's kind of a technical name, but theism is just the belief that there is a God, right? So the Christian belief that there's a God. All of you, whether you knew it or not, if you came this morning believing that there was a God and that Christ was the Savior of the world, you are a Christian theist, right? That's how you would be categorized, right? So maybe you learned something new about yourself, you got a new label, uh, that doesn't really matter. Um, but it's just a way of quickly summarizing these different understandings of the world. There are other forms of theism or other forms of belief in God. There may be things like Judaism or Islam, those, those kinds of religions where there is a belief that there's a God, but it's not specifically the Christian God, right? So that's why we would designate Christian theism as something different. There's Hinduism, there's Buddhism, this, this idea of seeking um, oneness with the ultimate reality. Uh, there's New Age lines of thinking where it's just like eclectic pieces of stuff pulled from everywhere, this, this mysticism that's involved there. Um, there's something that's called postmodernism that's becoming really popular these days, and that is really all about relativism, and you live your truth, and I'll live my truth, and is there any such thing as truth? And they would probably answer no, right? And then uh, there's a worldview called naturalism. Now, we're going to talk about naturalism this morning because I think it's important for us uh, because it's one of the things that, at least in, in popular culture, is most prevalent, right? When we talk about people who are scientists, we talk about academia, uh, talk about the things that get put on the Discovery Channel or the History Channel or things that get um, published in the news, these types of things, um, a lot of times people are coming from this specific worldview, this worldview that's, that's called naturalism. And we want to break it down a minute because We've been talking about arguments for the existence of God, how we see God in nature. And the naturalist is going to say, no, no way, that's not what, um, that's not what nature shows. And so we're going to talk about specifically some problems with it and some understandings of it. All right, so let's talk about naturalism for a moment. Um, in his book, uh, scientist Carl Sagan says this, the cosmos is all that is or ever was, or ever will be, right? There's a popular CV, uh, TV series uh, based on this book, right? Do you remember from, I don't even know what decade it was, the show called The Cosmos? We had to watch it in school when I was in um, high school, right? Uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, a scientist, just put out a, a remake of it a, a number of years ago. There were two different series involved there. But um, anyway, Carl Sagan, he says The Cosmos, and what he means is uh, the universe, basically, all, all, all the matter and energy that we see, he says that's all that is, that's all that ever was, and all that ever will be. In other words, the only thing that exists is matter and energy. There's no spiritual realm, there's no God, there's no soul, there's, there's none of that stuff, right? It's just the physical stuff, the material that we see before us, okay? Now, there are many arguments for this worldview. There are also many arguments against this worldview. I would say that the things we looked at last week about arguments from cause for the existence of God, arguments from design, uh, something that we're going to look at a little bit later today, would all be arguments against this worldview that all there is is the material stuff, 
right? Um, but I want to talk about this because it's often portrayed as if this is, should be your default assumption. Naturalism should just be um, your default, and it's so obvious. Why would anybody not believe that this is the way the world is? And if you believe differently, then you're foolish, you're dumb, you're not intellectually sophisticated, you're all these things, right? And so I want to talk specifically about this one because we need, to be under, uh, we need to understand that we don't always have to be on the defense about our worldview. The naturalists would attack our worldview, and we don't always have to play defense. Sometimes we can play offense. And so I'm going to talk about some problems with naturalism today as a way of giving you some understanding of the, the difficulties with this. So that when you are bombarded by the media or the Discovery Channel or the History Channel or whatever it is, you can go, wait a minute, I don't, I don't think that's quite right. All right? So we're going to look at two different ways that this belief in naturalism undermines itself. Put on your thinking caps. Here we go. Right? We're looking for wisdom here. Right? Our goal is to try to understand the world that God has made. And if there's a competing worldview... Are there problems with that, right? Okay, so a lot of naturalists, they would say that the theory of evolution is true. And this is that the biological complexity that we see in life um, has evolved from less complex forms to more complex forms through the process of random mutation and natural selection. That's how we would kind of define evolution, right? So there are these changes that happen, and there's this natural process of selection that occurs to organisms, and so uh, those that are best uh, suited for survival uh, survive, and those that aren't, uh, they are weeded out, okay? So naturalism is the belief that all we are is the material stuff that we're made of. There's no soul, there's no non-physical realm, there's no God. And evolution, the process by which we got here, having evolved from lower life forms, all right? But here's the thing. When we think deeply about this and carry these ideas through to their logical consequence, their logical conclusion, there are major problems with this view, okay? If naturalism and evolution are true, then naturalism cannot be rationally affirmed. What that means is you can't have good reasons to believe that it is true. Well, let's talk about why, all right? So let's take evolution. Now, evolution is supposedly all about survival, right? You have adaptations, you have um, mutations that happen, and whatever is beneficial for, for survival, that's what lives on, right? Those are the genes that get passed on to the next generation, right? So if we think this through then, that means that our brains are the product of evolution. And the thoughts that we have, the beliefs that we have, are simply the product of the brain. And natural selection acts on those things, and it selects for survival. All right? With me so far? Evolution is about survival. Well, there's a problem, because if evolution is about survival, then evolution doesn't really care about truth, right? So as your brain is evolved for survival, 
evolution, natural selection, doesn't care whether you have true beliefs or not. Your beliefs don't matter. It only matters that there are behaviors that lead to survival. Here's a simple illustration that kind of gets the point across, right? You remember in, in the Charlie Brown Christmas where um, Linus and Lucy are having an argument and Linus says, give me one good reason why I should go through this agony of memorizing this script. Remember this? Remember this? And she says, I'll give you five good reasons. One, two, three, four, five. And he goes, those are good reasons, right? Like, the, like the, the, again, that, that kind of gets us to this understanding. That wasn't a really good reason for him to memorize the lines. But the reasons led to his survival, right? You see the picture here? And so evolution, natural selection, selects not for good reasons, but for survival. And what that means is that you cannot trust your brain to come to true beliefs. All you can do is trust your brain to come to beliefs that lead to survival. What's the problem then? Well, if all our beliefs are selected for survival and not for truth, that means our beliefs are unreliable. And so our belief, or someone's belief, that naturalism is true would therefore be unreliable. And so the thing is, like, this doesn't disprove naturalism. It doesn't disprove naturalism as a worldview. But if naturalism is true, you don't have any good reason to believe it to be so. It's self-defeating. And these aren't word games. This is logic and where this line of thinking takes us, okay? There's, there's a second way of kind of getting to the same place, and it's important too. And it goes something like this. If naturalism is true, our beliefs are determined and naturalism cannot be rationally affirmed. But what does that mean? Well, if all that exists are the atoms and the energy that make up who we are, then there is no soul. We are not anything other than moist robots. Okay? And this isn't my line of thinking. This isn't something that, that, that Christians accuse naturalists of. This is what naturalists say. People like um, Richard Dawkins you may have heard of. He's on Discovery Channel a lot. Uh, philo atheist philosophers like Daniel Dennett people like Sam Harris. These are um, the more pop, maybe not the more scholarly atheists, but these are the more popular atheists that you'll see out in the culture. They'll all affirm this, that you are nothing more than a moist robot. There is no soul. There is no self. All those things are just illusions. They have a really hard time explaining consciousness in the way that we perceive the world. But essentially, your brain is just a biochemical system, right? And so everything that you think or believe is the result of the physical laws of nature, uh, your neurochemistry, outside forces acting upon you, and these uh, things happening in your brain that produce your thoughts or the things that you believe. All right? So there's a problem with this. Because in, under naturalism... Your mind does not exist. It is just your brain. And that means 
however you can explain consciousness and beliefs and all those types of things, the, cause, the, uh, the direction of causation only goes one way. So outside forces act upon this basically um, biological machinery in your brain producing your thoughts and beliefs, but your thoughts and beliefs cannot affect the physical world. Your thoughts and beliefs are just an illusion. And the causation does not go back the other way. It doesn't, so that means you can't um, choose and think something and then act upon it. It's all just chemical processes predetermined by the laws of nature. So if all of our beliefs are determined by physics and chemistry under naturalism, it can't be rationally affirmed. What, is, what does that mean? Well, your thoughts and beliefs are just the result of a chemical reaction. I've heard it described once like, and now it's way more compl complex than this, but if you ever put vinegar and baking soda together, what do you get? Right? Your thoughts and beliefs are just like that. You, there's no you to make a choice. You are not weighing options. You're not looking at things and going, well, that's a good reason. That evidence sounds right. You're not, there, there is no you to make that choice. All your choices are predetermined. And so if naturalism is true, there's no one making decisions, determining it to be true. And so you have no good reason to believe it. Again, I know it's complex. I know I'm kind of like summarizing these things. But these are not simply word games. They are the logical outcome of this worldview. And again, these two things that I shared this morning don't prove that it's false, but they show you you don't have any good reasons to believe it, even if it were true. There are other things that we can talk about. Now, as we look at the world and we're seeking wisdom, and knowledge, naturalism cannot provide a foundation of knowledge. If it's true, you can't know that it's true. You can't know that anything is true because you're just geared for survival. You're just a complex biochemical machine. But there are things that we can look at in the world and recognize that there is a God. And as we talk about wisdom in a pursuit of knowledge, there, again, there's that recognition from Proverbs of trying to discern what is right and just and fair. This recognition that there are uh, such things as good and bad and right and wrong. And so as we begin to expand our understanding of God's revelation of himself to us, we can look at other things. And specifically this morning, we're going to shift gears and we're going to look at morality and how that points to God. Naturalism does not provide a foundation for knowledge. But if the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, if God has created us, then there are things that we can know. And there's a certain way that God has set up the world and there are ways that we can say, hey, that points to God. So we're going to look at morality this morning. And there's an argument from morality that goes something like this. If God does not exist then objective moral values and duties do not exist. Objective moral values and duties do exist, therefore God exists. Now, did we just prove God right there? I kind of think yes, but it's not as simple as like just reciting 
it's not as simple as reciting a simple little argument. You kind of you have to get down to, to what that means and understanding of that, right? And so um, it's not like you're going to be able to go out and spout this off and people are going to be like, oh, yeah, I see it now, right? Like that's not generally how it works. But the idea is that, that morality points us to God. So let's define some terms, all right? What do you mean by moral values and duties? Well, moral values have to do with worth. What is something worth? When you ask what its value is, you're asking what it's worth, right? And so it has to do with good or bad. And then moral duties have to do with what is right or wrong. These would be things that we ought to do, right? There are plenty of, of good things in the world, and we're free in many ways to choose them, right? Which, which good thing that we want to do. Um, there are other things that are moral obligations, things that we ought to do. Love your neighbor as yourself, right? Serve one another in love. These are, these are commands from God. These would, be, um, these would be moral duties. Now, what do we mean by objective? Objective means something that is independent of what people think or perceive, Okay? So what we're saying in this first line of this argument is that without God, good and bad and right and wrong cannot be objective. If there is no God, there is no external reference point that we can declare something to be actually right or wrong or actually good or bad. There just is no foundation. And many of those philosophers, not all of them, but many of those atheists that I named earlier would just bite the bullet on this and say there is no such thing as objective moral value. There is no such thing as objective moral duty. All we're stuck with are preferences. What you like and what I like. And what this group of people likes and what this other group of people likes. And there's no way to adjudicate between those things. So under subjectivism, where there is no external reference, all we have are people's opinions. And if we think, like, if, if, if the Nazis, they decided, hey, this is right for us. Hey, you know, who are we to judge? If there's a society on earth that believes in uh, raping and torturing children, under uh, subjectivism, who are we to judge? That's just what their preferences are. But see, when you hear stories like that, there's something in you that goes, that can't be right. There's something messed up with that. There's something that, that's wrong with that. And so that leads us to step two of the argument, which is objective moral values and duties do exist. We know from our moral experience that there are such things as right and wrong, just as we know from our um, sensory experience that the external world exists, right? There's a pew in front of me. There's a book right here. I can feel it. I can see it. I could taste it if I wanted to. Um, like, we experience the world through our senses, and we experience morality as well, and not just as subjective, but rather as moral laws that apply for all people of all time. In fact, God has kind of given us a hint to this in his word. He tells us about this in Romans when he's talking about people breaking his commands and laws. He says that even the Gentiles who do not have the law, um, when they do by nature the things required by the law, they are a law for themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, uh, 
their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them, and at other times even defending them, right? God, God kind of clues us in that, that he's written on our hearts his righteous requirements, what it means to be good. Now, we are marred by sin. We are marred by the fall. Sometimes our consciences are corrupted. Like, uh, people don't always think clearly or sense clearly in this way. Uh, but there is this level of everyone around the world understands some kind of basic morality. We know this because if you wrong them, they'll let you know. They'll cry out, that's not fair. That, I mean, hey, I can take your stuff, but don't you take my stuff. There is some kind of understanding of right and wrong, even if it's broken, even if they think that they can um, pillage and abuse and take advantage of other people. If you do it to them, they don't like it. And that tells us there is something that, that underlies this, that objective moral values and duties actually exist, that it is always wrong to torture children. It is always wrong to sexually abuse someone. It is always wrong to murder someone. These things are just, we, we know it in the core of our being because God has written it on our hearts. But the problem is, if there is no God to write that on our hearts, then it's all just a matter of opinion. Without God, there's no foundation for it. And so the argument goes something like this. Without God, objective moral values and duties do not exist. But objective moral values and duties do exist because we all experience this. And so therefore, God exists. And morality points to God. There's a common objection, and it seeks to show that good and bad are just arbitrary or that there is something good outside of God. And that's um, a, a deep discussion, but the Christians, as Christians, we have an answer for that. And that is, we understand that what is good or bad, right or wrong, is grounded in God because he is essentially good. He is the ultimate standard of goodness. And so our duties, our obligations come from his divine commands. There's a lot more that we could say on this, but what I'm trying to do this morning is to expose you to these ideas. Because very often our um, systems of discipleship, maybe our systems of uh, Christian education, uh, don't get into these deeper topics because they're complicated, they take a long time, they're sometimes confusing, all this kind of stuff. And so my goal with all of this is simply to expose you to the ideas. If you walk away going, I didn't understand a word he said. That's okay because it took me two or three times to read it or four times or five times to understand it, right? But the, the reality is as we seek wisdom, knowing how to live well in God's world, we're called to love God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. We are to apply ourselves and understand how God has revealed himself. Right? So, so far, over the last two weeks, we've talked about arguments from cause. We've talked about arguments from design. This morning, we've talked about arguments from morality. 
we could go on and on and on about the things that God has made and how they point to him. We could talk about mathematics. We could talk about intentionality, which is the property of thinking about something. We could talk about meaning and purpose in life. Like, we could go on and on and on about how all of these point to God. Now, it's important as we give some kind of assessment of what we've said so far, is that these arguments point to God, the transcendent, immaterial, powerful, personal, all-good, uncreated creator. But they do not get us to the full concept of the Christian God yet. We haven't gotten yet to Christian theism. We've gotten to the idea of a good God who created everything, but we haven't gotten to Christian theism. And the question is, well, how do we get there? And there are many different answers to that, many different ways that, that God, in special revelation, reveals himself. But there's one specifically that's important for us today as we wrestle with how God reveals himself. And the answer is that God reveals himself in human history through the person of Jesus and his resurrection from the dead. And you will be told by those same naturalists and all those other people who hold these other worldviews that that is just a fairy tale, that that's just a story that's made up, and why would you believe in something for which there is no evidence? Remember, we said faith is not belief in something for which there is no evidence. Faith is a relationship of trust in God who has revealed himself, and we have good reasons to trust him. And so they would claim that we are just believing in fairy tales. But God has, in fact, revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. So I would ask you to hang in there with me for just a few more minutes. Why was Jesus of Nazareth crucified? Because he made outrageous claims about himself. He claimed to be the one and only Son of God. Why would anyone take his claim seriously? Well, that all depends. If Jesus actually rose from the dead, then his claim to be God's unique Son carries considerable weight. On the other hand, if the resurrection never actually happened, then Jesus may be safely dismissed as just another interesting but tragic historical figure. Did Jesus rise from the dead? As we explore this question, we need to address two further questions. What are the facts that require explanation? And which explanation best accounts for these facts? There are three main facts that need to be explained. The discovery of Jesus' empty tomb, the appearances of Jesus alive after his death, and the disciples' belief that Jesus rose from the dead. Let's examine each of these. Fact number one. The discovery that Jesus' tomb was empty is reported in no less than six independent sources. And some of these are among the earliest materials to be found in the New Testament. This is important because when an event is recorded by two or more unconnected sources, historians' confidence that the event actually happened increases. And the earlier these sources are dated, the higher their confidence. Moreover, the Gospels indicate that it was women who first discovered that Jesus' body was missing. 
This is likely historical because in that culture, a woman's testimony was considered next to worthless. A later legend or fabrication would have had men make this discovery. Our confidence in the empty tomb is further increased by the response of the Jewish authorities. When they heard the report that the tomb was found empty, they said that Jesus' followers had stolen his body, thereby admitting that Jesus' tomb was, in fact, empty. Most scholars, by far, hold firmly to the reliability of the biblical statements about the empty tomb. Fact number two, the appearances of Jesus alive after his death. In one of the earliest letters in the New Testament, Paul provides a list of witnesses to Jesus' resurrection appearances. He appeared to Peter, then to the Twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Finally, he appeared also to me. Furthermore, various resurrection appearances of Jesus are independently confirmed by the Gospel accounts. On the basis of Paul's testimony alone, virtually all historical scholars agree that various individuals and groups experienced appearances of Jesus alive after his death. It may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. Fact number three, the disciples' belief in the resurrection. After Jesus' crucifixion, his followers were devastated, demoralized, and hiding in fear for their lives. As Jews, they had no concept of a Messiah who would be executed by his enemies, much less come back to life. The only resurrection Jews believed in was a universal event on Judgment Day after the end of the world, not an individual event within history. Moreover, in Jewish law, Jesus' crucifixion as a criminal meant that he was literally under God's curse. Yet somehow, Despite all of this, the disciples suddenly and sincerely came to believe that God had raised Jesus from the dead. They were so completely convinced that, when threatened with death, not one of them recanted. Even the Pharisee, Paul, who persecuted Christians, suddenly became a Christian himself, as did Jesus' skeptical younger brother, James. Some sort of powerful, transformative experience is required to generate the sort of movement earliest Christianity was. That is why, as an historian, I cannot explain the rise of early Christianity unless Jesus rose again, leaving an empty tomb behind him. These three firmly established facts cry out for an adequate explanation. How do you make sense of them? Down through history, various naturalistic explanations have been offered to explain away these facts. The conspiracy hypothesis, the apparent death hypothesis, the hallucination hypothesis, and so on. All of these have been nearly universally rejected by contemporary scholarship. The simple fact is that there is just no plausible naturalistic explanation of these three facts. 
The explanation given by the original eyewitnesses is that God raised Jesus from the dead. If it's even possible that God exists, then that explanation cannot be ruled out. For a God who is able to create the entire universe, the odd resurrection would be child's play. An empty tomb, Jesus' appearances alive after his death, and a group of dejected followers suddenly transformed by a radical new belief in a risen Messiah. These are independently established historical facts. How do you explain them? part two that I'll encourage you to go look at. It'll be linked online. And it goes through each of those naturalistic explanations and it'll explain why they all fall short. And these aren't just stories or fairy tales. This is what historians, both Christian historians and non-believer historians believe are the facts. There was an empty tomb. the disciples experienced some kind of appearance of Jesus after his death. And they might try to explain it away by hallucination or something like that, but they believed they experienced something and that their beliefs were radically changed so that they were willing to die for their beliefs. And so the argument goes, these three facts require an explanation. And what is the best explanation? Well, the naturalistic theories, they fall short. The best explanation is that God raised Jesus from the dead. What we've been talking about this morning as we talk about God revealing himself, we've covered a lot of ground and there's way more that we could have talked about today. But what I want you to go away with is the fact that, um, that what we see are these worldviews in conflict, okay? We named them all. They cannot all be true. They, they, they hold beliefs that are mutually exclusive. They cannot all possibly be true. And so the debate is not about is there any evidence or evidence versus faith. That's not the debate. What we have are systems of belief, systems or ways of thinking. And there is evidence before us as we look at the world, as we look at uh, the heavens, as we look at the biology and microscopic uh, level as we look at human experience and morality, there is evidence before us. And the question is, which way does the evidence lead? Does it point us to naturalism or postmodernism or any of those other systems? Or does it point to the true and living God? The thing is, God wants us to know Him. He reveals Himself in nature, He reveals Himself in morality, He has revealed Himself in history. And we have many good reasons to trust in him. Would you pray with me today? Father God, I thank you for who you are and how you've shown yourself to us. Lord, I pray that we would pursue you with all of our hearts. God, you call us to truth and to grace. And God, I pray that you would help us not to be afraid to seek the truth. Even when we have doubts, even when we have fears, even when we have legitimate questions, you are a God who has time for us. You are a God who wants to show yourself to us. And so, God, I pray that we might all pursue 
truth and come to a knowledge of you. That we would walk in right relationship with you. And as we grow, that we would understand that the fear of the Lord is truly the beginning of knowledge. God, have your way in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.